Almost nine months after the review into the migration system was handed over to the federal government, the migration strategy has now finally been released. There are significant changes on the horizon. Visa processes will be tightened in a bid to reduce the migration intake. The minimum English language requirements for international students will be increased. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says there'll be a focus on attracting the skilled workers Australia needs. Virtually everything that we have done as a country that's truly mattered has involved asking the best and brightest from around the world to come and try to help us. It is an essential system for the growth, for the prosperity, for the security of our country, and it's one that we need to protect and nurture. Joining me now is Joanna Howe, a professor of law at the University of Adelaide, and she was one of the three reviewers of the migration report handed over to the government. Professor, we saw Australia's net migration level peak last financial year at 510,000. We know at the centre of the debates over big and small Australia, if you like, there is this sort of number that people like to be certain about. So what do you think is a sustainable level of migration in the years to come? Mm, It's a good question, Andy, but I'd actually like to push back on the premise underlying it, which I think stems from the success of Peter Duffin in making this immigration debate all about the numbers. The review that I participated in was a a once-in-a-generation review. It assessed the entire program and looked at what we need to safeguard Australia's future. And this infantile debate about numbers. What's the optimal number? It's almost like Peter Dutton thinks there's a magical number that will play well politically. When in reality, what we need to be thinking about as a country is is not how many migrants, but how do we do migration well? How do we attract the best migrants that are the right fit for Australia? Because, you know, we are an immigration nation. We need immigrants. We are, we need them for our, to, we, our birth rate is declining and we rely on immigration. And, you know, this, this infantile sort of fixation on this magical number, it, it, what it, I think, obscures is the fact that the opposition hasn't had a policy package around immigration and they sat on their hands for nine years including during the pandemic when there was this unique opportunity to think about the fact that we had closed borders, what is the best fit for our migration program going forward? And I do commend um, Minister O'Neill and Minister Giles for actually commissioning a once-in-a-generation review to think about, well, what do we need to make immigration work for Australia's future? Okay, I take your point about qualitative, not quantitative Mm. uh, migration intake. We'll come back to that in a moment. Martin Parkinson, who co-authored the migration review with you, pointed out on RN Breakfast this morning that back in the year 2000, there were something like 700,000 temporary migrants. There are now up to 2.3 million temporary migrants. That's 2.3 million non-citizens that the economy is relying on. Uh, How many would be seeking a permanent life here? Is there any idea about that? Look, I think we know that many people that come here want to stay here. And I think the broader point there is a lot of the fixation is around the permanent program and that number, when in reality, we actually have a large reliance on this demand-driven temporary program. And what the review seeks to do and the strategy that was announced uh, today, what it does is it says we actually need to look at our demand-driven migration system and make sure that we're identifying the core skill needs, the essential skills and the specialist skills that the country needs. So the, the government has proposed a three-tier system and for the first time since 1996, what this does is it creates an orderly, well, it attempts to create an orderly migration program that regulates how 
this happens because up until this point, employers have been able to identify the shortage and then bring workers in, but it hasn't necessarily always operated in the national interest. As you noted in the report, Australia's productivity growth is on the decline, and this is not a problem exclusive to, to us, but it, it means attracting skilled workers has become more and more urgent. And, you know, uh, as you point out, there are no, you know, easy fixes here. But uh, but then what is the biggest obstacle that could be removed tomorrow by the government to solve that problem? Surely it's about the permanent pathway to give workers a reason to, to, to want to stay. Well, I think actually the biggest obstacle is for small businesses, which are the engine room of the Australian economy, who have found the migration system inaccessible because of high upfront fees. And the strategy, what it what it does is it allows rolling monthly fees and to reduce the upfront costs. So for the first time in Australia's history, since we've had a temporary skilled program since 1996, now under this new era going forward, skilled temporary labour migration will be accessible to small business because they will be able to bring in temporary migrants. It won't just be the purview of the large end of town. The second aspect of this, though, in terms of addressing productivity is allowing temporary migrants to switch jobs. Up until this point, migrants have effectively been tethered to their employer and this has created exploitation risks because it means that they haven't had the freedom to change employers if they're being exploited. They haven't been able to voice complaints because they might lose their sponsorship and then get sent home. And in the strategy, what they have announced is they'll give temporary migrants 180 days to find a new job, so that's six months, and during that time they can work without being sponsored. This ability to job switch will boost productivity because it means employers and workers will have to be productive in order for this whole system to work. Do you think the government's commitment to a seven-day median visa processing time will help attract some of these skilled workers? Look, absolutely. I think this has been long overdue. Processing times have had really blown out and already we can see under the new government there's been a big emphasis on getting those processing times you down. Because you see some countries like Singapore, uh, certainly for some visa classes, they more or less roll out the red carpet and you can do it almost at a one-stop kiosk. So what ideas, not what new ideas can be injected into this space? Well, I, I think that the the speed helps, but you also have to counterbalance that against the right checks and balances. So for the highly skilled cohort, so I think the government's calling them the specialist workers, they've got a specialist uh, skill that just isn't available here. They're paid a higher rate. They're, they're going to be less likely to be exploited. We should be able to bring them in in a matter of days, really, because we know that, that that's an in-demand skill at a very high wage and there isn't the exploitation risk. As you go lower down the skill and wage level, I'd do think that it's unrealistic to think about a seven-day processing time because there are other things that you need to look at. In particular, the whole temporary migration program is premised on the idea that it's a skill that are current, currently in the labour market Australians cannot, cannot give. And, and that's why we have to go overseas. And you do have to have appropriate checks and balances in place. And one of the other key changes from this strategy is to place Jobs and Skills Australia and a tripartite approach to addressing skill shortages right at the epicentre of the whole system. Now, that's never been done before. We've never connected domestic skills and training needs with migration. They've always been divorced. And the strategy does acknowledge that we're going to need to wait for JSA to, to mature and to become embedded fully into the system. But going forward, that's going to be a game changer. And in my view, a bigger game changer than, you know, a seven-day processing time, which although important, um, in and of itself, it doesn't guarantee that we'll be the most attractive destination. 
Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the government's new migration strategy will help protect the university sector and reduce the exploitation of international students, which to me sounds ironic because if you read between the lines, it does seem like the higher education sector has been um, feasting, if you like, off all of these uh, students and their, 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 their fees. Are you confident we won't see shonky education institutes uh, kind of adapt under this new strategy? Look, I think that's a really good question and we know from the history of international education in Australia that particularly in the vet sector, uh, where there are low barriers to entry to set up shop and to bring people in from overseas and then to place them in the workplace and, and they're paying you to work but you're you're pretending that you're giving them study. So that kind of scam education arrangement, we know that throughout the history of our country since that's been enabled and opened up, we've seen dodgy providers emerge and, and, and manipulate the system to their own advantage. So I don't think anybody can guarantee that we're going to be able to stamp that out. All we can do is try and end engineer out the risks of that emerging. So I think the commitment to strengthening the Student Visa Integrity Union is an important um, aspect of this, strengthening requirements for international education providers, making sure that universities take responsibility for some of this because they are they are profiting. I think you're right to say that, Andy. They profit from international students coming in immensely um, through the fees. And there's an obligation on the universities to make sure that the quality of the education, providing work experience for international students, helping them to enter profitably into the labour market uh, and, and to minimise opportunities for exploitation. That is part of the university package and it should be part of that package. For vet providers, we need far more scrutiny and rigour um, so that just not anybody can set up shop. And I, I think the government's moving in the right direction there, but this is a really big problem. And so, you know, it's not like it's going to be fixed overnight by Claire O'Neill waving a magic wand. This is a structural problem that requires commitment, bipartisan commitment to address. Just lastly and briefly, if you can, I'm curious about who, in your um, review of the policies, who is saying that international students need to have greater English language requirements to get a visa? I mean, where's that coming from? Look, I, I can actually speak to that personally as an educator, as a professor of law at a G08 university. The reality is if students aren't coming in with a, a good level of English, it makes it almost impossible to teach them. Something like law, which has a specialist jargon and language all, you know, as, as a discipline, it makes it really difficult if there is not a good level of English. And so an immediate thing we can do to improve the integrity of the system is to lift the English language requirement. Now, that's going to be unpopular, perhaps, amongst some vet providers and some university providers who just want to open the doors so that they can bring in as many international students as possible and they don't want the checks and balances. But in my view, both as an educator but also as a reviewer as part of this program, increasing English language requirements is fundamental to ensuring the integrity of the international education system in Australia. I want to press you on my first question, which was about the numbers. And I know that this is a game that politicians like to play, and we're not playing that. But there, there is something to be said about the electorate clearly understanding a level in which is sustainable, which a lot of people think should be pegged to housing availability. So really, is is that one way of migration levels being deemed sustainable if we don't want to put forward a figure? But Andy, are you going to peg it? 
temporary, the number for temporary or, or the number for permanent? Because in my view, we're not having this conversation properly if we're talking about an artificial permanent number without taking into account the temporary migrants that are coming in and understanding the relationship between the two. I take your point that a lot of Australians are concerned about infrastructure, about housing affordability. I completely accept that. But the reality is we've always relied on migration to grow and build our country. And going forward, we're going to need to continue to do that. If we want to have a proper debate about what is the optimal level of migration, we need to take into account temporary and permanent migration and understand those dynamics rather than this fixation on a number. Excellent to talk to you. Joanna Howe is a professor of law at the University of Adelaide and she was one of three reviewers into the migration system earlier this year. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.